0: Good morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, for him. And he is before all things.
1: Thank you, Mark. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. Uh, Glad that you're able to join us in worship, whether in person or over live stream. Uh, My name is Paul Lim, and I've had the pleasure and privilege of serving here as a scholar in residence for the last seven years, and as well as working at Vanderbilt as a professor in the history of Christianity area for the last 17 years. So it's been a great delight to be experiencing 16 falls in Nashville before they were in Boston, and so that's also Known for a lot of foliage, but as we kind of take a look around our city or our natural environs, it is easy for us to get excited about a lot of things. Uh, I know there are several University of Tennessee fans, and Tennessee, I think, won against Florida yesterday. And there are other things that are happening. And but I want us to kind of focus our attention on worship and what it means to really kind of think deeply about and get excited about the very purpose of worship and the persons who are inviting us to do that as we have just read this passage from Colossians chapter 1. So if you're able and willing, let's pray one more time and then we'll get right to the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, that you have always existed in that eternal fellowship with your Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you're able to lead us to yourself through that almighty and all-merciful will of yours then may you do so as we have just read this marvelous passage that really exalts the glory and the grace of the triune God. May our attempt to explicate these truths be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Thank you. In your name we prayed. Amen. Amen. So uh, recently, I've been fascinated by a, few culture, a new cultural phenomenon called He Gets Us. I know uh, Scott mentioned that a few weeks ago as well, and I got really curious. I began looking into it, which I think is hauntingly encouraging and prophetic, simple and sublime, and above all, truth-telling about Jesus by removing distortions about his identity and activity, who he was, how he would behave, with whom he would hang, and what message he would embody today if he were here with us. Among the messages this He Gets Us campaign are telling us in order to reintroduce Jesus to the vast majority of Americans, or in fact, by virtue of the fact that it's on the internet, anyone in the world who might get Jesus wrong, including many of us perhaps in this church, are as follows. One, one. Jesus was born to a teen mom. Two, Jesus is wrongly judged as well. Number three, Jesus struggled to make ends meet. Number four, Jesus welcomed all to the table. Number five, Jesus felt heartbreak too. Number six, Jesus was canceled too. By being nailed to the cross. Number seven. Jesus had, no, Jesus had to control his outrage too. Number eight. He felt alone also. Number nine. Jesus wept too. So he gets us. All of us. It tells us. As I was watching a number of these very short videos, none of which are more than two minutes long of this He Gets Us campaign, I was reminded of a couple of songs, one by Harry Styles and the other by Kendrick Lamar, which are in some point and in powerful ways quite emblematic of where we are today in 2022, amid COVID-19, amid a lot of important and even scary conversations about human identity, national security, global futures, intergalactic travels, you name it. I was in a, a few Uber rides this last summer, just a few months ago, when I heard this catchy tune that kept telling me that in this world it's just us. I asked a third Uber driver as to what this who sang this song, and he said, oh, it's some British bloke named Harry Styles. So I googled the phrase and found a song as it was. Answer the phone, Harry, you are no good alone. Why are you sitting at home on the floor? What kind of pills are you on? Ringing the bell and nobody's coming to help. Your daddy lives by himself. He wants to know that you're well. Oh oh oh. In this world, it's just us. You know, it's not the same as it was. In this world, it's just us. What grabbed my attention as I listened to the song and Zuba rides was these following words: What kind of pills are you on? In this world, it's just us. You know, it's not the same as it was. In this world. It is just us. I thought about my relationship with my wife. I wondered if she would also face me and sing this song as I did to her. In this world, it's just us, you and me. I thought about many young people in our world today. What kind of pills are we all on? I can tell you what I'm on myself. Can I also sing these words to Jesus? What if I were to turn to Jesus and say to him, In this world, it's just us, you and me, Lord. Then with Kendrick Lamar, his new album, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, he has a song that is real dynamite, that exposes a raw nerve endings of the tsunami of cultural changes and, and human journeys in the African-American communities. The song that I have in mind is a song entitled Auntie Diaries. It speaks powerfully about the struggles within Kendrick's own journey about having an auntie who's a man now, The song describes a world that our middle school, high school, and college students will help shape and serve and lead and love, and for all of us as well. How will Jesus respond to Demetrius, who is Marianne now? For some, Jesus might be too restrictive, whereas for others, the same one who gets us might be way too inclusive, and we are describing our culture, our civilization here and now. In some powerful ways, both these songs illustrate the struggles of our civilization. It is for this world that Jesus came. It is the same Jesus who gets us that the Apostle Paul in today's text is screaming from his rooftop or, to be more accurate, from a dungeon cell right now. For us so let's look at today's text Colossians 115 through 23 if you have your phones please pull that out or your actual Bibles that' would be good too our title of the sermon is the uniqueness of Christ so if Jesus really gets us we should ask in what meaningful way is Christ unique I thought he was just like no different from us if he just gets us that's the topic we'll be unpacking during our time together we'll get there by developing the following three points we'll see that Jesus as number one the head of all creation, the head of all creation. Number two, the head of all new creation. And thirdly, Paul presents Christ as the sustainer of all our loves and lives. So head of all creation, head of new creation, and the sustainer of our loves. Number one, Christ is the head of all creation. One of the things that Paul is unequivocally committed to sharing with these new Gentile Christians in Colossi, mouthful, but it's important to know that this Christian community in Colossi, for the most part, were of Gentile demographic, meaning that they were not Jewish in their culture and religion before, and they were much more steeped in the way to think about God from the Greek and Roman sensibilities and cultures. And so he's now sort of like if you think back on uh, Paul's uh, talk at the uh, at, at um, in Athens uh, at Areopagus, and he's now recognizing the plethora of uh, gods and goddesses and all all of them that are there, and he says, "I'm here to proclaim to you that which unknown that unknown deity that you're worshiping. I'm here to explain to you today." And Paul had a very similar mindset as he ministered to a lot in the Asia Minor context. Epaphras was the church planter, and, uh, and Paul was Epaphras' partner in, in this ministry. And he's so excited, and he's writing to these Colossians, new Christians, that Jesus is similar to and yet fundamentally different from and unique among all the pantheon of deities who were worshipped in the first century Greco-Roman world. He affirms similarity, but he also affirms dissimilarity in order to show the uniqueness of Christ. First of all, this early Christ-following movement had its origin from within the context of what scholars would call Second Temple Judaism, which had more than his fair share of messianic fervor and anticipations and actually purported messiahs as well. In fact, as you may recall from the Gospels, Jesus warned his own followers that there will be many who will come in his name and to do all these things, but they shouldn't be deceived to believe them. One of the key emerging ideas about Jesus being the Messiah, as many in the early Christian church were proclaiming that he was the Messiah, was that he was the one who alone could actually fulfill the role of priest, prophet, and king, the tripartite figures who were anointed for their specific purpose. But in the early Christian community and subsequently even today, we proclaim that Jesus alone is the one who is at the same time priest, prophet, and king. A prominent 20th century Lithuanian-American rabbi named Julius Hillel Greenstone wrote these words about uh, the Messianic idea. He says the Messianic idea is characteristically and uniquely Jewish. The nations of antiquity, despairing of the present and heedless of the future, gloried in their past, in which they saw the perfection of all happiness, social and natural. Most not that different from Bruce Springsteen, who sings about glory days and how we kind of think about all the glory days of high school and whatnot. The Jews, however, Greenstone writes, looks for happiness and virtue, not to a past golden age, but to the futures, to the end of days. A favorite phrase with prophets and sages, end quote. The idea prominent among the Jews of Jesus' time was that this Messianic figure will usher in the end of days and usher in the kingdom, restore the kingdom to Israel from their exilic experiences. And that the inbreaking of the future glory of Yahweh Shalom, or peace, will be made visible and manifest already. But due to the ferocious and frantic opposition from the forces of the evil one, the glory of God will be met with significant setbacks and even structural derailment, at least temporarily, so that it will feel very much like it is not yet done. So put it very simply, the reign of the Messiah, however visible or invisible, physical or spiritual, will have elements of both already and not yet. The kingdom of God, kingdom, the messianic kingdom is already advancing, but is not completed yet. So let's see how Paul, the first century Jew, who until this dying day was convinced that the hope and consolation of Israel was none other than Jesus himself, whose Messianic identity was revealed as one who is creator of all things, seen and unseen, the mediator of God's purposes and plans, and reflector of God's glory and identity. We'll see that. So first point is, again, Christ as the head of creation. He tells us that in verse 15, very plainly. Paul and all of his Christ-following Jews and Gentiles are convinced that there was just one God. The God of Israel and the Father of our Lord Jesus. Then the question became, did Christians worship one God or three gods? If since the answer was one God, then they had to further struggle with these correlative questions which makes them in some crucial ways quite different from Jews and Muslims, though there are points of continuity, but there are points of clear discontinuity. On the one hand, they are all monotheists, claim to worship one God, that is, worshiper of this one unique deity that is superlative and different from all things that are contingent. But Christians insist that because of the advent of Jesus Christ that we are singing about today, That the question surrounding the identity of God and the problem of God became more intense, not less. Let me explain. Let's look at verse 13. Here Paul talks about the rescue operation that God initiated by bringing us into the kingdom of the beloved son. Beautiful phrase. He said, you know what? God, because of his work of rescue operation, brought us into the kingdom of the beloved son. That God has someone that God has already and eternally loved. And that is the beginning of all of God's actions. All of God's actions was predicated on God's being. That means God's identity from God's identity overflows God's activity. In verse 15, this, he is the beloved son of God. This one was the image of the invisible God. The the, the word, the Greek word image there is icon from which we get the word, I know that for most of us, when we think about the word icon, we think of our laptops and the icons that we click on to get to these things. But in the, in the Greek, icon actually means in the Greek Orthodox tradition, a, wooden, a lot of times wooden objects that specially authorized artists are called iconographers. They will paint or they will carve out these kind of objects that are designed to, one, reflect the transcendent beauty and the truth and the glory of God. To, therefore, to help worshipers to see not in but through these objects, the beauty and the transcendence and the glory and grace of God. So Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. Who else was, were icons of the invisible God? Let me tell you, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see the beautiful beginnings of humankind. And Adam and Eve were created in God's image, yes? That means that the imago Dei, the the image of God that they were created with, was to reflect to the rest of the world the beauty and the glory and the grace of the Creator God. But we know what happened, because in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul develops what, what people call this kind of Adam Christology. That means Adam is the, you know, the, uh, Adam is the first Adam, obviously, and then Jesus is the second Adam. Unlike the first Adam, who did not do what he was called to do, who failed to do his kind of covenantal obligation the second Adam comes to undo the work of the first Adam who failed to do uh, that, that he was supposed to do and he did do things that he wasn't supposed to do. And what Paul does is to really present Christ as the one who is better than the first Adam. Just as the first Adam was supposed to reflect the glory of God, but he is, uh, the second Adam does reflect the glory of God unfailingly. And here's another very, very important qualifying statement. Whereas Adam was created, first of all human creation, but Christ was above all creations, meaning that he's actually the first one among all creations, that he's above that created order. And I know you're sitting there thinking, Paul, how does that make Jesus God? Okay, don't walk out yet, but let's actually think together. What Paul is doing is to gathering, he's starting with the already existing data. The data is that Jesus was here. Right, if you because now I want you to think about that. If you're living in Colossae in 70 A.D. or C.E., what you have heard is that there was somebody named Jesus who walked on this planet Earth about four decades ago. Right? It was some Jewish, you know, former carpenter whose ministry was not that long, three years, but whose ministry that that was often misunderstood and misconstrued and maligned became the founding figure of this new religious movement. Right, so I want you to put yourself in that situation. You're living in Colossae around seventy or eighty AD, and you heard about this Jesus. And the question, the existing given data, is that this person was. But then these Christians are beginning to mount this claim that he's the creator of all. Do you get that? I mean, I want you to really think about the the, the really tremendous intellectual and existential challenge and religious challenge that it became for them to really kind of get at this. So Paul ever so gently in the beginning of this letter, he's kind of mounting up this kind of a, a, a intellectual, theological, as well as existential challenge to show that Jesus is preeminent among all, above all. And this preeminent creator of all things is also somebody that you can actually get close to, that you can even dare to have a relationship with, and that was going to be a real revolutionary idea for first century religious uh, kind of context. So now let's look at here. Um, when most people thought about the one who created all things in the first century world of Paul, most thought either of this kind of impersonal demiurge or demi kind of, you know, so half kind of God figure uh, seen in popularly in Plato's Timaeus who made things in the world yes but he was qualitatively different from an inferior to god the one who was the basis of all being i don't know if i uh, and want you to uh, that's what they thought yet this demiurge was not the one who perfectly imaged the invisible god as paul says that jesus images perfectly the invisible god and he is the and then in verse 16 in him all things were created qualitatively different from Adam, qualitatively different from any other gods and goddesses that would be around. There would be the Greek version of the relationship between God and the mediator creation. The messianic vision often focused more on the exalted role of the mediator of God's shalom and kingdom But it lacked the understanding of this figure being the maker of angels and maker of all things, both celestial and terrestrial, as he does in verse 16. It says, Jesus is a creator. In him, all things are created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. What Paul is doing is to open up our vista of what is possible and real. He's saying, listen, there are angels and archangels and all of these things that are created. And guess who made them? Jesus I don't know if your cosmology or if your kind of Christianity expands to include them, but I think they should because Paul, the apostle, says they do exist, and yet be not scared. Jesus is a Lord and creator of them all. right? So then that leads me to the second point. Not only is Jesus the the, the head of creation, Paul is going to tell us something even more profound, that that is, Paul presents Christ as a head of creation new creation look with me in verse 18 all right so and then he says okay he's before all things and in him all things hold together he's the one who actually is holding this entire cosmos by his will and wisdom and power and love but in verse 18 he says and he's the head of the church head of the body of the church he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy or preeminence He's the head of the church, head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Two very interesting statements that are juxtaposed. There's an absolutely crucial connection that Paul makes that we often miss, both in our interpretation of this text as well as our application of these sublime teachings about, about the sort of identity of God and the economy of God. Here Paul connects the foundation and purposes of the church with the resurrection of Christ. In Acts 20, 28, Paul urged the Ephesian elders to devote their lives for the sake of the church of God. And he writes, which he purchased, God purchased with his own blood. Now, if you're living in the first century, would you think that you would have found that idea completely nuts? Yes. How can God bleed? God doesn't have blood. What are you talking about? And yet Paul, when he's urging these Ephesian elders to really get excited about and devote themselves to the flourishing of the church, he says, you know what, I want you to remember that God bought this church with God's own blood. So he's apparently believing that God bleeds. Then as Paul will develop for the rest of this prison epistle, the church's moral order, Christ's presence moral order, as well as ethical standards, as well as their economic practices and political decisions have to reflect the fact that it's the church's OG identity comes comes from a God who bleeds, a God who gets us because he became one of us. So Christ is not only the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, entities invisible and visible. So let me ask us at this time, especially our students, college or grad students or middle school, high school, elementary school even, So the question is, how many stars are there in our galaxy? Anyone know? How many stars in our galaxy? Lots of them, but give me a number. 100 billion, did you say? 100 billion, okay. You are actually right. (laughs) I think, because that's what Hubble Telescope tells us, that there are about 100 billion stars. 100 billion is 1 times 10 to the 11th power. I don't know what ten to the eleventh power is. I never had anything like that. I just know it as a number. In our Milky Galaxy, there are about hundred billion gal- uh, stars. And there, are how many um, billion galaxies are in our universe? Do you know? Okay, I wasn't just talking to you, but okay. Yes. Thank you very much, Ness. There are hundred twenty-five billion galaxies. That's one point two five times ten to the eleventh power. So not only do we need to look at this beauty of the Radnor Lake. But I want you to also think about the immensity of our universe, and do not separate the two out. In the same way that we appreciate the beautiful foliage of Radnor Lake and Percy Warner Park and wherever else, in the same way, the immensity of these—the the number is what 125 sextillion stars. Sextillion—I never heard that word until a week ago. I said like, sextillion. What is that even? Is 10 to the 10, 1.25 times uh, 10 to the 22nd power. This number, to be honest with you, is so high, so much higher than anything I've ever imagined in my life, that it almost feels like nothing. Many astronauts, actually, when they have come back from their kind of galactic kind of travels, they say there are so many stars, you see so many galaxies, and, and it almost feels like it is the so many that it's almost nothing. It is one milky galactic soup, or just you're lost in that wonder. And all of them, without any exception, has been made by Jesus. I want you to think about the, the, the stupendous claim that Paul is making with that. I don't know about you, but that's an absolutely staggering number and claim. But, 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 you wait for this. Here is the most mind-boggling claim of all. Paul claimed that this creator of all things was also the, one, the first one to be raised from the dead. We see that in verse 19. The creator of all of these things was also the one who experienced death. Moreover, he was the one who experienced resurrection for the first, in verse 19, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to him all things, because he is the head of the body, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that he might have supremacy. So the the vast majority of people in the Greek or Roman or Jewish or the so-called barbarian world of religions there was really, really no room for the dual role of someone being the creator of all and the same creator experiencing death, even if the resurrection were to follow. So in verse 19, Paul further describes this aspect of Christ's uniqueness. He is the head of new creation because he experienced death. He is the head of new creation because he overcame it. And here is a key aspect of Christ's uniqueness it is in this beloved son of God that God will be pleased to have the fullness of God, God's being and identity dwell. Someone who's going to someone that he loves and trusts so much that you know what? All that I am, all that I stand for, you got it. You have my perfect approval and you are the one who will really represent me and reflect me that nothing in nothing else in this cosmos can how can this one who experienced death reveal and reflect the fullness of what it means to be God? For a Greek conception of God, God was apatheo, that means God who didn't have emotions. And understandably, they felt like true God will not be given over by kind of tempests of our emotional ebbs and flows. However, as Tertullian, uh, Tertullian a, second, a third century North African Christian and others have beautifully explained, the sublime truth of God's identity as revealed in the death of Christ is that God enters into the realm of human emotions in the, way, in the only way that God can in Jesus. And then Paul can confidently proclaim that Christ is the one in whom the fullness of God's identity can be seen. This God of Paul was above all a deity who initiated the work of new creation, which he calls it as reconciliation. Let's think about the beautiful word reconciliation. We love reconciling people. We love people who are going to come between these two fighting factions and say, hey, 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 we can do better than this because we can be better than this, and let's reconcile our differences and get better. Paul puts the, the, the mission of Jesus as that of reconciliation, that there are these kind of divided factions, fighting factions, and God's work was to reconcile the, the humankind to the God of all. That work of reconciliation was not through a mass email blast or an audible voice that was recognizable to all people in all their languages, hundreds if not thousands of linguistic varieties. No, Paul insists here that the work of reconciliation, as it was already foreshadowed in Israel's scriptures, required a sacrificial lamb or scapegoat which will take away the sins of the community by a bloody sacrificial death as Paul here personifies in the event of Jesus and says that it was the blood of the cosmic sacrificial lamb who died on a cross. Here's yet one more thing which was deeply offensive and abhorrent. How can the icon of God, the perfect represent, representation of God's being and act, the creator of all things, the one in whom all the fullness of divine identity dwelt, how can this person die and especially die on a cross? Dying on a cross is basically having death penalty and you'd be executed on a, by lethal injection or electric chair. Can you imagine any de- decent human society where the ruler of all would die in a public execution with throngs of people not just watching but also jeering? I don't know what your feelings are about the last pro-presidents, whether it's Biden or Trump or Obama or Bush. But you would not expect and would desire that they be executed as a public criminal, right? And yet, that's precisely this God who knows all things, who can plan all things perfectly and infallibly, has orchestrated that his one beloved son would die here on earth. I don't know, but I still don't get it. I really, I mean, I I proclaim it, I believe it, but if you ask me, like, does that make sense? It only goes to heighten the immensity of our own cost of rebellion. That it took nothing less than the eternal Son of God to come and reconcile us to God himself. So, it is also through these perfectly orchestrated and executed events of Jesus' earthly life that God was revealing God's own identity as one who gives, as one who loves by dying, lives by losing, that was the irony, beauty, and the truth of the gospel. That leads me to my last and the third point of today's conversation. Christ as the sustainer of all our loves and lives. Christ's purpose was directed at us is to present us wholly in God's sight. That's the purpose of the church, to show the beauty and the splendor and the truth and the goodness of God's being and God's act. Without blemish and free from accusation, whether the accusation is from God or from Satan or from our own internal musings and voices, etc. Verse 23 says that if you continue on in your faith, established and firm, then do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, then you'll be okay. But some have said, Paul Lim, this passage by your apostolic namesake teaches that we can lose our salvation. Not so quick. I've always said that it would be ludicrous in the first century marketplace of religious ideas and practices for Paul to say, hey, you're saved, so you don't need to do anything full stop. That just simply would not work. Equally problematic and disastrous would be to tell the new converts that things are basically, now they're entirely up to them, and that they're left alone to fend for themselves. That is why the idea of Christ as a sustainer of all our lives and loves was so key. Remember that you can sing the Harry Styles line, to and with Jesus. In this world, it's just us, you, me, Jesus. And really mean that, and really a true reflection of reality. The way that Paul directed and the sustaining presence of Christ was precisely through his idea of the Holy Spirit as the deposit guaranteeing that which is to come and as the voice within us that teaches us how to pray and praying in our own place when we don't even know how to pray. A North, uh, North African Christian in the 4th century, um, I have the privilege of uh, learning together with the Gotham Fellows every year as part of our National Institute for Faith and Work. And we read a lot of different things. And one of the things that we read is Augustine's Confessions. And in it, he says something very similar to this. He says, Lord, you are, you are the one who is closer to me than I am to myself. Okay, so God's essence is closer to me than I am to my own essence. You know me deeper than I can ever know myself. And you love me much better than I can ever love myself. This is the one who is the sustainer of our lives and our loves. This one will carry you as he has died for you, as his spirit will remind you that you are not alone. Our deepest anxieties, our deepest fears, and our sins are completely and forever dealt with by the death of God in Jesus, who now lives to invite you to a different reality of life, as he's asking us today, how real am I exactly in your life? You know, um, some of you um, may have heard that I one of the delights of teaching at Vanderbilt is to teach in the maximum security prison at Riverbend. And uh, last year, I had the pleasure of teaching uh, and learning immensely from teaching on the death row. Okay? So it's a course that, I, uh, that is called God and Human Suffering in Christian Traditions. And in one class, one of the death row inmates said something I'll never forget. He said, hey, you know, doc, the most intense prison in the world is not anything physical, not even the worst of maximum security prisons with the baddest lockdowns. The worst and most powerful prison in the world exists right here, he says, between my ears, inside my head. So you can be locked up in here waiting for your execution and yet be free and unbound." Conversely, you can be outside, ostensibly free, but actually all locked up by your fear, anger, anxiety, regrets, and rage. When he said that, everyone was just totally blown away. Who is truly locked up? Who's not? Then a few of the Vanderbilt students who also go to class with me to learn together, there were about 25 of us in that big seminar, that a few of the Vanderbilt students also chimed in about the higher percentage of mental health concerns and cases among current college and grad students than ever before. So Jesus gets us, yeah? Is it true? How does he do it? Why should he do it? What difference does it make for us? This is what this table of the Lord is all about. Body of God broken, body of God, the blood of God shed I've been teaching theology and history of Christianity and religious studies for the last 21 years now and walking with the Lord for about 31 in ministry. And yet, I have yet to meet a God or hear of a God who bleeds or of a God who weeps or of a God who embraces the lostness and fallenness of humankind by dying the worst possible death in our place. That is what is unique about Christ. Our job as Christians at work Our workplace is not to show how Christianity is so much superior and coherent than their schisms and isms and religions, nor is it for us to shy away from ever acknowledging the fact that you follow Jesus. I think all in all, the the best thing, the only thing we are called to do is to say, come and taste the goodness of the Lord in Jesus. Come and see who this Jesus is, what difference he might make in our journey as well, especially in this meal called the Eucharist in which we give thanks and true, true and heartfelt thanks to God for his body broken and his blood shed. So, friends, who is this Jesus to you and exactly how real is he? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this awesome privilege of being able to worship you in freedom. We thank you that we could read scriptures without fear of recrimination or incarceration that we can read and also understand and proclaim and get excited about the fact that God is real in the same way that the elements that we're about to receive of juice and wine and bread are real, so more real is Jesus who gave these things to us, the creator and the sustainer of all things, lover of our journey and sustainer of our lives. We thank you for who you are, and we also thank you more excitedly as to whose we are. Thank you for embracing us. So it is just us, but we are okay, because you are our Lord and our sustainer and our friend. In your name we pray. Amen.